Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Adams. Nothing but the truth. One man's journey to find it. <clears throat> it is still April 15, 2015. We're to part six of uh, Servants of Antichrist. Part five was an example of a Servants of Antichrist uh, sharing the tr- truth with lies or error. We look at uh, Pastor Steve Anderson, quote unquote, independent Baptist and text Mars as they expose the synagogue of Satan, but totally twist scripture and negate uh, Rome's involvement in all of it, the Jesuits, the Vatican, how they created the state of Israel, how they're using this synagogue of Satan as a way to take over the Middle East, regain control of that region. Um, uh, then also, then there was the, uh, I forget who he is, anyways, but Israel News or whatever, and there's the one guy who's uh, supposed to be a uh, Christian, but uh, is a Sabbath keeper and all that other stuff, so more aligned with uh, the Hebrews Roots movement than actual teachings of Christ, uh, saying that uh, they have proof that they're going to build a third temple. <clears throat> well, what's proof he does have is, is that Rome owns most of Jerusalem. And then, of course, he uses El Park's moral, Elba Pike's moral dogma to explain that they're going to build a third temple. Well, we'll find out what that third temple is when time comes, if it ever comes, if God ever allows it. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that two examples of sharing the truth mixed with error. Uh, unwittingly knowing to be serving being servants of the Antichrist, the papacy, one way or the other. And, uh, you know, we're called to come out of her, uh, come out all the way, and we're talking now about all this false religion. We might not have much choice in the matter when it comes to freeing ourselves from the bondage of the temple powers of uh, Rome, but we certainly have a choice of whether to follow Jesus Christ or not. Follow him and his teachings and other ways of men. Regardless, there were good things that were shared as well as the errors. Um, the fact that part of it, the Antichrist system is the synagogue of Satan, these Jews which are not Jews. And uh, Steve Anderson does a good job exposing, especially when it comes to the um, genealogy that how is all bogus um, which then also begs the, the question as far as royalty in Western Europe that influences our lives um, that's probably all bunk too and the problem is is that not much we can do about that until we can in, convince their enforcers that is a lie. And then they're talking about the bankers, the military, these religious organizations, the power, the elite. It's, it's a bunch. It's a it's a lie. There's not much we can do about it, legally or otherwise, or military or anything like that matter. So we got to put our faith in Jesus. Um, I just want people to know that if you did listen to that last recording, that I am not saying that. Just to keep the Sabbath is Salvatic, 
nor do I believe it is even biblical. If you feel like keeping the Sabbath, that's your business, but it can lead you down a dangerous slope, slippery slope of more errors and, and heresy. So I see it happening to me. It did happen to me. I'm trying to break away from it now. So this whole idea of, that somehow we can work our salvation and then say it's not salvific, it's just it's, the contradictions are profound and disingenuous. Make your decision and stay with it, I guess. Um, so now we're going to go to part six. We're going to go back. We never got a chance to finish the video, uh, the documentary proving Catholic Church's systematic abuse and cover of uh, in the U.S. and of course throughout the world. Um, this is the BBC, BBC documentary. Of course, the question should be raised is why uh, the BBC, or not the BBC, this is actually um, HBO, why they were allowed to do this, what's up with that. Um, uh, of course, if we look at the number of complaints and plaintiffs and cases out there, there's the tens of thousands, maybe millions at this point, who knows. Least, maybe at least hundreds of thousands of people who have come forward exposing the fact that the Roman Catholic Church has been abusing their youth. And uh, of course, the last show, the last recording, we read an article from Melbourne uh, uh, talking about one more of the endless amount of cases of pedophilia. The truth of the matter is, when we look at the synagogue Satan, the traumatic Jews, or we look at the Vatican, the Jesuits, the priest class, um, pedophilia is rampant. It also will be found in their daughter churches as well. And as we, I guess, you know, if you look at Revel, uh, Romans 1, it's the recompense for their idolatry and that they end up becoming, we become perverts, perverted. We misuse, we misuse our bodies and misuse um, each other with um, this perversion and turns into homosexuality, bestiology, uh, pedophilia, etc. Interesting that we discovered too that Tel Aviv is supposed to be the number one place for homosexuality. Interesting. Um, so, see, they have this rapid situation of perversion. Um, and so we look at the ruling elite and how they use religion, banking system. Uh, of course, I'd like to say that uh, Rothschild's the red shield, not the red sing symbol. A red sign, but the red shield, Rothschilds, Rothschilds, shield, um, that their connection, if we look deeper, will be very profound with the Vatican and with Rome itself, the Roman Empire that we live under. So now we're going to, this uh, was published in July. Uh, this video came up, I'm not sure when it actually came out, it was 2012 or 2013. Uh, or 
sometime, maybe in the summertime of 2013, it came out. Vatican is being um, exposed for what it is, the most criminal organization in existence. Crimes that they have managed to commit against humanity for 2,000 years by uh, its criminal priests, nuns, and evil religious leaders are now being discovered worldwide, uh, or at least being talked about. As it is written that any day now, the Catholic Church will go up in flames and be destroyed forever, as it is the mother of all abominations on earth. And if you want to discover more about uh, Vatican Crimes U.S., they have a website called Vatican Crimes U.S. And uh, maybe that's what we'll do. We'll look at... uh, uh, a little more crimes and arrest records, criminal records, three criminal records. I don't know, I'll look into that more and see what's all about Ohio crime. <clears throat> Crimes, convictions. It gives you a list of like public arrest records, etc. Criminal condition history. Hmm, I don't like where we're going here with this. This is legit. <clears throat> Let's see what we're doing here. Related links. Vatican crimes, you know, I don't know if this is legit or not. Anyways, let's look and see what they're talking about here. Uh, Protect Your Children Foundation is a, uh, document is documenting and exposing all its crimes worldwide. Um, the entire nation, uh, entire nations of this dangerous Catholic Church possesses to our, poses to our ch- Alerting, okay, so we'll try this again. The, the Protect Your Children Foundation is documenting, exposing all of its crimes worldwide, alerting entire nations of the dangers that the Catholic Church poses to our children in our communities as they have been implementing crimes, implementing crime schemes or of rape, torture, starvation, human experiments, abuse, exploitation, and more in its religious institutions, while claiming to, quote, help the children, quote. The Vatican has utilized its false appearance of mercy, claiming that they have they are representatives of Christ, when in fact they do this to gain trust and commit crimes. So... <clears throat> this is what we're going to listen to. Hopefully we don't have any uh, complications like last time. I kept on cutting out on me when we were trying to do this. 
and uh, we'll go from there. So, I mean, it's amazing you connect all the dots, the connection with this particular religious institution and its involvement in all these, whether it's the banking system, whether it's pedophilia, uh, corruption, the mafia, drugs. It really is the center of all evil. (laughs) So here we go. Once again, documentary proving Catholic Church's systematic abuse and cover-up in the U.S.
When I first entered St. John's, I loved it. The campus of that school was beautiful. Such magnificent stonework. It was like a castle. I loved that school. Our school had a magnificent statue of Jesus Christ with his hands lovingly placed on the heads of two children. I could see that Jesus loved children and the children loved Jesus too. My name is Gary Smith. I was four in 1954 and I really liked being at school. I liked being in the dorm. The dorm was cooler than being at home with my parents because I didn't have any siblings. When I first got to the school, I loved it because there were so many children around the same age as me who I could play with. And they were good people. It was a good group of friends. In 1953, I was four years old. I remember when I got there, I couldn't stop crying. And I was looking up at a nun. She was wearing her white and black robes. I was looking at the nuns, and my parents left. Every morning we'd have mass. The priest would use incense. And the smell would fill the room. I wanted to be a Catholic, like everyone else. And so when I was 10, Father Murphy baptized me. Murphy would hug children. All the kids just loved him. They always flocked to him. He would play with the kids, and the nuns would stand around just watching and smiling. I wanted Murphy's attention. Like all the other kids, I needed him. He was like a second father to me. He had this ability, like um, the Pied Piper, to just get all the rats to follow him and do whatever he wanted. Father Murphy knew how to sign, and he could communicate with all the kids. He was a hearing man who could sign, and sign very well. I remember looking at him and thinking, wow, that's really impressive. Lawrence Murphy was raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and entered the St. Francis Seminary in 1943. After he was ordained as a priest in 1950, he moved next door on assignment to St. John's School for the Deaf. He had a knack for public speaking and fundraising, and by 1963, he was promoted to director of St. John's. After Father Murphy baptized me, I felt proud. I felt better. I was excited and couldn't wait to have my first communion when I was 12.
got into trouble at school. I was mischievous. And the nuns would come and say, go to father's room. And so I did. confessional booth there was a dividing wall but there was a little space that you could see his face through so you could sign back and forth and he would bless you I filled out the confession form The form listed stealing, lying, sex, and things like that. I would mark things off and turn it in. Father Murphy looked at it and then asked me really weird questions like, have you been with other boys? I would say I played with myself. And he would ask detailed questions like, how? Or what did you do? And then he said, okay, I want to see you in my office this afternoon. So I said, okay, and left the booth and kneel to pray. He asked me, have you been playing with your penis? And I told him no. But he gave me one of his looks. And it scared me. So I admitted that, uh, yeah, I played with myself. He told me to pull down my pants and to do it right there. So I played with myself for a little bit. He watched me intently until I was done. Then he told me that God forgave me, and I felt like my sins had been wiped away. He could have been playing with himself for all I know, but I couldn't see. I remember one afternoon I went to Murphy's office, and he closed the door. and he told me to take off my pants and I said take off my pants I was shocked and I thought why would I have to do that and I was looking at this man in a black suit the white collar and I thought to myself he's a priest and I'm supposed to obey him so I took my pants down and he molested me I felt sick and confused. Why would a priest do that to me? Is this supposed to be okay? Did I do something wrong? I I didn't know. After it happened, I just left. And I just kept it to myself. Later on, 
Father Murphy decided the confessional would be on the second floor in the closet. I confessed my sins. I was forgiven and blessed, and then I was touched. I started sweating like crazy. I was so nervous. I just feel myself shaking. I just kept thinking, enough, enough. When Father Murphy stopped, I went to bed right away, and I was just sick. I was just sick. And I laid in bed under the covers, and I felt absolutely disgusted. I was a monk. I was a very pious monk. I folded my hands, kept my eyes down, did my studies. I lived in the system. Richard Sykes spent 18 years as a Benedictine monk. He was also a therapist counseling his fellow priests. Sex and celibacy became central to my research and understanding. Sight began what became a 25-year study examining celibacy in the priesthood. My intent was that this would help in the training of priests. I, I felt that I could make a contribution by being honest uh, about it. The data showed that at any one time, no more than 50% of American Roman Catholic priests were practicing celibacy. There were certain levels of experimentation, relationships, involvement, and even criminal involvement with children. And the more I got into it, the more and more discouraged I got. They know that celibacy is not practiced. By they, I mean Vatican authorities, I mean bishops, I mean religious superiors. And the higher you go, the more they know. You may not be keeping your celibacy, but as long as it's secret, it's okay. Sight found that clericalism, setting a priest on a pedestal above ordinary lay people, helped to prop up the secret system. Kids would come forward to their parents and say, well, Father did this to me. Don't you say that. You can't say that about a priest. Which then allowed priests to express themselves sexually, some from time to time, and some in horrendous ways. Sight recognized the syndrome that police call noble cause corruption, a belief that good intentions purify bad behavior. For a priest, belief in his own goodness can transform, like turning bread into the body of Christ, a perversion into a holy act. A priest who had an affair with this 12, 13-year-old girl, brought to one of their encounters what he said was a consecrated host. And he touched it to her vagina. And he said, this is how God loves you. And then he raped her. It goes from just this broad social acceptance, the priest is perfect, the pope is perfect, to this kind of perversion of power that can be twisted in this way. The system of the Catholic clergy, for which I have great respect, to which I have given many years of my life, selects, 
cultivates, protects, defends, and produces sexual abusers. asleep. I could see Murphy creeping into our room like a ravenous wolf. I could see him sit on a bed in the dim light of the illuminated exit sign, and I saw that he was molesting a boy. I imagined Jesus crying on the cross with a broken heart, wondering why Murphy was doing it. Why was Jesus just watching? Again, like a cat. Of course, we couldn't hear him, but someone would open their eyes and see a dark shadow passing by, and they knew it was him. I would see how he would go and pick out certain boys. He knew which boys wouldn't object if he went to them. Father Murphy would single out students with hearing parents who couldn't sign so that the children couldn't tell their parents what was happening to them. He favored me. He wanted me. He liked seeing me ejaculate. He got what he wanted and he would leave. That was his thing. He was sick. I was afraid to tell my mother because I didn't think she would believe me. She said a priest would never do something like that to children. I kept it a secret. My mother had already been through so much pain. My brother had been electrocuted. My father had hung himself. My mother had been through so much pain, and I didn't want to hurt her. for me to communicate with my father and so my dad would speak and Father Murphy would interpret. My father never wrote back and forth because I didn't know how to write well so I depended on Father Murphy and the nuns to communicate with my father. My parents were hearing so we used home signs, not true American sign language. We had some gestures for things like eating and for how they scolded me but they wouldn't actually sign bad. They would wag their finger at me. And there was no TTY. My parents were far away. So how could we possibly have communicated? Murphy took advantage of children in that situation. My question is, what about the sisters? Where were the nuns who were supposed to be watching the children? The nuns should have been able to hear, but they turned their heads and looked the other way. 
Murphy wasn't the only one the nuns should have heard creeping through the dorms at night. Murphy enlisted older boys in an organized system of abuse. One of these was Tom Tannehill, a high school student who had been molested by Murphy. As a dorm supervisor, Tom had used threats of discipline to force victims to perform oral sex on him. Pat Keene was only seven when Tom first molested him. He now believes that Tom was breaking him in for Murphy. I was very innocent, naive. After the first time Tom played with me, I got used to it. I felt so excited that he chose me out of all the others. It made me feel special. Bambi was the first movie that I watched with captioning, which was really exciting. I was sitting towards the back of the audience on the boys' side. Father Murphy walked up behind me and pushed me in the back of the head. So I looked up and I waved because I thought he was just saying hi. And then I went back to watching. And he nudged me again. So I acknowledged him. I think about it now, and it was probably his penis bumping up against me. He was playing with me. In 1963, Father Murphy went away for a few weeks. During his absence, there was a visiting priest from Chicago named Father Walsh. I could see Father Walsh signing, and I was watching him. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try my best to tell him. I think it was in confession. And so I told Father Walsh about Father Murphy molesting me. He didn't say anything. But I could see his facial expression change. A week went by, and I knew his last day was going to be Friday, and Father Murphy had come back. Father Murphy comes walking into my classroom and called Father Walsh. When I saw that, I knew this was it. I got up from my chair, and I went and peeked around the corner from my classroom. I could see Father Walsh and Father Murphy getting into a huge fight down the hallway. I went back and sat at my desk, and I didn't say a word about it. Murphy came back, and nothing was ever said. The following year, I was hoping Father Walsh would return, but he didn't come back. He didn't come back the second year. He didn't come back the third year. He just never came back. During the summer months, Murphy would take some of the boys up to his cabin in northern Wisconsin. Murphy would ask the boys to choose which one of them would sleep in the bed with him. They all pointed at me to have to sleep in the same bed as Father Murphy, and Father Murphy molested me again, but I never touched him. I refused, but he would touch me, and everybody knew that, and they just left me alone and didn't say anything. Father Murphy asked who was going to sleep with him, and all of us pointed at this kid Joe and said, he is. I didn't want to be picked. Poor Joe. I feel bad that we picked him. Murphy encouraged many of the children he abused to raise money for St. John's. As deaf students, they were told to target bars where sympathetic drinkers were more free with their money. Terry raised so much money 
he won a motorbike. When Murphy took Gary and the other seniors on a road trip to look at colleges in Washington and New York, he molested Gary almost every night. I was afraid if I said no, he would be mad. I just didn't know what to do. I got used to it and didn't care. I just wanted to graduate and get out of there and feel better. You know, between the ages of 26 and 31, I was baptized in a very radical way to know that this wasn't an anomaly, that this was a pattern, that there are treatment centers. Before ordination, I had no idea that we had treatment centers around the world for priests to go to when they sexually molested, raped, and sodomized kids. I didn't know that. My parents didn't know that. I didn't know that we had 55 molesters in my monastery. I didn't know there were more than 70 molesters operating in the archdiocese. That wasn't public knowledge. Shortly after his ordination at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota, Patrick Wall was given a special assignment, traveling the country, putting out fires for the church. The sexually abusing priest has to be completely removed his stuff is removed, and then there's another guy, basically another black and white, is placed in there to make sure that the normal things happen, that people are baptized, people are married, people are buried, and the normal life of the parish can continue. I thought I was going there to uncover the crime, to heal the wounds. I thought it was pastoral care. You know, comfort the afflicted, what we're ordained for. But... The people sending me in obviously had ulterior motives. You know, they would give you authorization up to $250,000 to settle a case if you could get a confidentiality order. And in 1995, we had a budget of $7 million to handle the various problems of childhood sexual abuse. And most people don't want to have anything go public. I mean, in the Catholic mindset, you don't sue the church. They want to know that it's going to stop. When Wall found out that it didn't stop, that offending priests were allowed to stay in ministry, he left the priesthood. That was part of your brief to report these things to the local affairs? Never. That's the worldwide policy, to snuff out scandal. another student who was abused at St. John's by Father Murphy. After graduating from college, he began hanging out with Arthur and Gary and found an unexpected way back to memories of St. John's. started getting these revelations, these memories. 
Finally, I woke up and I was furious. And the more we worked on it, the angrier I got. I had kept this quiet for so long and not said anything to anyone. It suddenly hit me just how wrong this was. And Bob was like, go to the police station. Now, go. And Gary was thrown off guard. And Bob said, if you're angry, Gary, then go. Go to the police station. Now, go. I gotta tell you, I'm shaking. We went down to the police station and went in. Bob was writing back and forth with the officer because he had good English skills. And then two police officers told us to stay in a room. And we waited and waited and waited. And I went to open the door and the door was locked. And then two detectives came into the room and said, you can go. And we were all excited about being able to leave and guessing that the detectives had already talked to Murphy. We waited for a week to go by, then another week went by, and then another. We didn't hear a thing. It was just sick. Murphy had told them that it wasn't true, and the kids were making it up, and we were just little troublemakers. It started to bother me more and more because I was hearing that he was molesting other kids. I was mad, and I wanted to protect these deaf kids, and it was time something about it. And we did. It was Bob's idea. We didn't put the reason why on the flyer. We just wanted it to be a warning to people. When the school would hold a fundraiser, they'd go to the cars that were parked at the school and they would put this flyer, you know, don't give money to this man because he abuses these kids. I was shocked and I tried to advise Bob that you know, this was real, was not really the way to fix this. He was caught up in the era of activism, and he was really trying to get deaf people to kind of stand up for themselves. At John Conway's suggestion, they hired a lawyer and began collecting sworn affidavits from Murphy's victims. The idea was to submit these affidavits, which were very graphic and very clear, to Archbishop Cousins. And then we thought uh, the matter would be finished. We thought that the priest would be removed from the school. The church's response was silence. Determined to make their voices heard, Bob, Arthur, and Gary went to the Milwaukee Cathedral and handed out their flyers to passers-by. Suddenly, they were granted a meeting with Archbishop Cousins. The Archbishop was there. Father Murphy was there. In fact, Father Murphy sat right next to me. He would look down, look around. He was not going to make eye contact with us. There were some teachers from the school, several leaders that I knew in the deaf community that were there to speak in support of Father Murphy. In the group were two priests. They were described by the Archbishop as members of the Vatican. And the Archbishop thanked us for bringing this matter to the attention of the Archdiocese. He allowed that this problem had existed before, and he mentioned that back as far as 1960, this matter had been. Cousins would deny having said this, but an investigation revealed that even before 1960, Father Walsh had tried to do something about Murphy. 
Having heard complaints from Arthur and from other students, Walsh reported the accusations to Cousin's predecessor, Archbishop Meyer. Meyer went to Murphy, and he confessed to the abuse. But Murphy was not dismissed. He went away on a short retreat before being invited back to supervise children at St. John's. Other deaf people had told Father Walsh. And then Father Walsh told Meyer in 1957. And then I said something in 1963. It turned out that Walsh had made the same report to the office of the Papal Nuncio, the Vatican ambassador in Washington, D.C. So by this meeting in 1974, the Vatican had known about Murphy for almost 20 years. This was known, it had been dealt with in the past. So there was just no question about the validity of the complaints. We immediately said Father Murphy has to be removed from the school. Murphy said, no, I take care of the budget and the money and everything. And Archbishop Cousins got very angry. He started scolding and arguing with us. I'm thinking, whoa, I can't believe this. Where was his compassion? Where was his wanting to listen to this? So we eventually kind of walked out, the Archbishop saying to me that he was very upset because he thought he was dealing with a person of good faith. I told him I thought I was dealing with a person of good faith as well. When deposed years later, Archbishop Cousins recalled the meeting. He said that at the time, he did not find the allegations credible. He had conducted an investigation and found no proof. When asked what steps he had taken to determine the veracity of the allegations, Cousins said that he had interviewed Murphy and the school staff. When the lawyer asked if he had interviewed students, Cousins admitted that he hadn't bothered to talk to them. After all, he said, the students are deaf. After getting nowhere with the archdiocese and being told by the police that the statute of limitations had passed, the men approached the Milwaukee DA's office with their concerns about ongoing abuse. Bob Bolger, Gary, and I went to the Milwaukee courthouse downtown, and we started handing out these flyers. And all the hearing people were shocked. Bob put the flyer on D.A. Michael McCann's desk. Nobody talked to us. We said nothing. We just kept handing them out. The D.A.'s office took notice of the flyers and granted the men a meeting with then assistant D.A. Bill Gardner. Gardner went out to St. John's to question students in the senior boys' dormitory. They met in our dorm, about six of the boys, the meeting only lasted about 15, 20 minutes, because they all said, no, no, nothing's going on, and uh, didn't take long, it was over. I was kind of surprised, because two of the gentlemen in the dorm uh, loved to argue, debate anything, and they were quiet as a church mouse. With no active students willing to come forward, the brief investigation ended. McCann's office said it did not investigate past claims because of the statute of limitations. Gary, Bob, and Arthur believed that their charges were not taken seriously because McCann and Gardner were devout Catholics. Gardner, his comment to me was, John, we are talking about the life of a priest here. 
you're not going to just go headlong into ruining this man's life. The DA's office never brought charges against Murphy, but at the school, the matter was not forgotten. One of the gentlemen in the dorm had come by the door to my room. It was about 10:30, 11 at night, and he said, "They want to talk to you about Murphy." And you know, that's when they opened up about some of the stuff. So I was thinking I need to try to, you know, help them get to the bottom of this. So I did call the Archbishop's office, and I just said, I, uh, I have some stuff on the Father Murphy case that I think the Archbishop needs to hear. He and I just met alone, and I told him, Father Murphy admitted to me that he was molesting boys. I said, I have dates and times, and I said, I'm going to go to the parents. Almost immediately, it was announced that Father Murphy would leave St. John's for health reasons. The writer for the Milwaukee Sentinel covered the story, including the allegations against Murphy in her draft. But the newspaper's editor removed any mention of sexual abuse. Terry had just returned to St. John's to teach history after graduating from Gallaudet University. With his new Super 8 camera, he filmed Murphy's departure. I remember filming Murphy leaving and knowing that Murphy was a pedophile. The children thought that Murphy was leaving because of health reasons, but I knew he was leaving because he had molested children. lined up to shake his hand. And through tears, Murphy said goodbye to each of them. come to him who have sexually offended. So he knows he needs to do something. He formed an order, the order of the paracletes, in order to treat pedophile priests. The first Servants of the Paraclete Treatment Center was opened in Jemez Springs, New Mexico in 1947. Father Fitzgerald did not believe in psychology or counseling. He favored spiritual treatment, hoping that sex offenders and alcoholics would find salvation on their knees praying for mercy. But on one point, Father Fitzgerald was absolutely clear. Sexual predators should be defrocked or hidden from the faithful behind monastery walls. He came to the conclusion that priests who sexually abuse children are like vipers. You can never stop them. The only thing you can do is remove them from their target population and make them live a life of prayer and penance. He wrote to the Pope, he constantly wrote to bishops, and he said, look, this is a terrible problem. Pedophilia is infesting lots of seminaries. You've got to do something about it. So he thought, let's get an island. You can't stop them, but you can contain them. 
Let's get an island in the Caribbean. He sent a priest out. He was looking in Barbados. He was looking in, in various islands. And they went ahead and they actually did begin the process to buy an island. It was the island of Caricou, off the coast of Grenada, famous for its nutmeg and beautiful beaches. The church put a $5,000 down payment on Caricou. The church superiors overruled the idea of an island for pedophile priests. Then the church hierarchy decided to change the policy of the paracletes. Instead of removing priests from victims, the centers attempted to rehabilitate and recirculate them. From the 50s to the 90s, the servants of the paraclete spent $80 million treating more than 2,000 priests in special centers in Italy, France, Great Britain, Africa, South America, and the Philippines. Lawrence Murphy retreated to his cabin in Boulder Junction, a small town in northern Wisconsin. He was assigned to a local church, St. Anne's, but the parish was not told anything about Murphy's past. Murphy continued to abuse local children. Back in Milwaukee, Gary Smith decided to tell his father about the abuse he suffered as a teenager. John Conway did the interpreting and explained it to my father, and he was very upset. And that's when my dad lost his temper and decided to contact a lawyer. They decided to file a lawsuit against the archdiocese, the school, and Father Murphy. Nuns from the school and other supporters of Father Murphy within the deaf community began showing up at Gary's apartment, pressuring him to drop the lawsuit. Then, mysteriously, the matter was settled. Father Murphy agreed to pay $500 for Gary's legal fees, and St. John's offered Gary the sum of a few thousand dollars for counseling. The deal was struck after a nun named Sister Martha Ann visited Gary, who had no one to translate for him, and persuaded Gary to sign an unusual document in which he dropped the case and apologized to the church. He, of course, is deaf and marginally literate. Not all deaf people are illiterate, but English is not their language. They coerced and tricked him in to a settlement. Gary's apology, the church failed to pay the $5,000 for his therapy for 20 years. Father Doyle is an early whistleblower in this scandal. He's working for the papal nuncio in Washington. He's beginning to see some of the communication about these cases and is realizing that it could be a bigger problem than just a couple bad apples, a bad priest here or there. He initially tries to work within church channels 
and he thinks that there's going to be a response. When there isn't, he eventually becomes a public whistleblower. The attitude from the Vatican was, we don't, we, we don't turn our priests in. This is our problem. We take care of it. You don't refer to the civil authorities when they're committing felony crimes. Now, I don't know what they would have done if it would have been a slew of murders. He has remained in the church while being both a critic of the church and an expert witness in lawsuits against the church. I first became aware of the Murphy case when it became publicly known, and I was asked to evaluate some of the information. The Vatican knew that there had been prior reports about Murphy. There was no conspiracy, but there was something far worse than a conspiracy. The very policy of keeping this absolutely secret. That was the policy. And the first regulations to keep these issues absolutely secret were issued in 1866 by the Vatican. Back in the 1980s, Father Doyle wrote that these cases were going to cost the church eventually a billion dollars. The last estimate is it's over two billion. So he's right. Facing the crisis, Catholics confront the sex abuse scandal on the very first day of Holy Week. NBC News in depth tonight, crisis in the church. New details tonight about how the Boston Archdiocese handled the case of a priest charged now with repeatedly raping a young girl. Tonight, another priest in jail. John Hagen, accused by more than 130 of abuse. Newly released documents show Boston church officials knew for Cardinal Law, knew of Shanley's alleged abusive behavior, but never informed legal authorities. Last month's life sentence given to Father John Hanlon for raping a young boy is the latest chapter in a scandal that is rising. Now, after the church sex scandal first came to light in Boston, thousands of victims across the country have gone public. This morning, the Pope has broken his silence about the growing sexual abuse rocking the Catholic Church in the United Even States. Even President Bush weighed in yesterday saying he's confident the church will clean up its business and do the right thing. Identified as a key figure who covered up sex abuse in Boston, cardinal law cost the church tens of millions of dollars in settlements. But instead of being punished by the Vatican, law was rewarded for the seven-year term at this magnificent basilica in Rome. He had the second most prominent church in Catholicism, had a palace to live in, and he's got a, a stipend that keeps him going in a luxurious state of affairs for the rest of his life. Sends a pretty blatant message that victims aren't that important, but, but you've, you've persecuted this poor cardinal. You know, he's suffered enough. Now we've got to give him uh, a nice cushy job to protect him. One of the things that Vatican officials have tried to do is portray this as an, an American thing, or at best, an Anglo-Saxon thing. Oh, these sex abuse scandals, they happen only in the United States, in Canada, and suddenly, in the year 2010, this great scandal explodes in Europe. It explodes in Ireland, in Germany, in Austria, in Switzerland, in France, in Belgium. Everybody points to this to be uh, from the date 2002, when the Boston Globe said, hey, we have a problem here, and they subsequently published 1,200 articles. This is an old, old problem, and if you follow this problem to its foundation, it will lead you to the highest corridors of the Vatican. <laughs> Benedicti Vercini Sesti. 
cardinale Pratiche. In 2005, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger was elected Pope and chose the name Benedict XVI. He was known as a great theologian and intellectual. What many did not realize was that for 25 years, he led the Vatican office familiar with the most severe cases of sex abuse by priests, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. The CDF has a dark history. When it was founded in the 16th century, it was known as the Inquisition. Ratzinger took that job over. He was Archbishop of Munich and Freising, and he was promoted by John Paul II to run the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Think of the, the Pope in the middle and a whole bunch of offices around him. What you had was multiple offices of the Holy See who ultimately don't talk to one another, handling these different cases. And so cases would get bogged down. But then what happened in 2001, Ratzinger put out this teaching approved by John Paul II that said every sex abuse case that involves a minor, they all come to my desk. From 2001 forward, every single pre-sex abuse case went to Ratzinger. Cardinal Ratzinger, now His Holiness Benedict XVI, is the most knowledgeable person in the world regarding priestly sexual abuse of minors, because he has all the data. Inside the cloistered walls of the Vatican lie voluminous records of worldwide sexual abuse in the priesthood, centralized in the secret archives of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. It is the century-old history of the Catholic Church. We have documents from councils in Spain in the fourth century after Christ in which there is written something about sex abuse with children. So it is 1,700 years of dealing about this. This is the guilt of the Vatican. They could already understand how deep the scandal was, and that this scandal was not just an American scandal, and that a pedophile is not a sinner, but he is a criminal. He is a criminal who plans his activity, who is very uh, attentive to organize situations in which he can abuse children. For most people, Tony Walsh was the priest from Valley Farmers who uh, did an Elvis impersonation. He was part of the singing priest group, and he was very good. He was a really, really popular priest. What most people didn't know was that Tony Walsh was Ireland's most notorious pedophile. In 2010, a government investigation revealed that Walsh, by his own count, had committed over 200 acts of abuse. That investigation, known as the Murphy Report, also uncovered the fact that the Archdiocese of Dublin had known about Walsh's activity 
for nearly 20 years. It did nothing to inform parents or police. His first appointment in 1979 was to Valley Farmers, a suburb of Dublin. And he's put in charge of the altar boys, even though in 1979 there was a complaint already made against him, a couple of days after his ordination. In Ireland, Catholicism is kind of like a blood type. It's the status quo, it's what's always been done, and you don't question it, and you blindly go along with it. You know, the Catholic Church was part of who we are and what we are. The priest, he is the carrier of the sacrament. You know, it's almost like he's, the, he's got the Holy Grail. I mean, I remember interviewing a woman once, and she said, we used to get down on our knees when he passed by. And bless ourselves, he carried the host, you know. That's how people saw them, and that's because they were almost godlike. The government investigation into the singing priest uncovered church documents that revealed a new dimension to the worldwide sex abuse scandal. It was the role played by bishops and the Vatican in allowing the abuse to continue. Year after year, parents reported Walsh's abuse to the Dublin Archdiocese, but the church did not punish the priest, reach out to the victims, or alert local parents. As revelations continued in the Walsh case, parents and survivors scanned the Murphy Report to learn the extent of the crimes and the cover-up. Documents showed that the church kept allowing Walsh to care for children, even after a secret stint in a clinic run by the servants of the paraclete. The clinic allowed Father Walsh to roam the streets of the nearby large city after admitting to abuse the hundred kids unsupervised. He was allowed dressed in clerical attire and fed masses in the local churches. Father Walsh visited a house and paid a lot of attention to the 11-year-old son. He agreed to babysit for the children, and God knows what happened to kids that night. I mean, that's a clinic allowing them to do something like that. That is ridiculous. And they're not being held accountable. Father Walsh was immediately removed from the clinic, I think it's a bad sign when a paedophile gets thrown out of a clinic. Through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. And we ask these and all our prayers through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Even after a decade of abuse, the faithful heard nothing about Walsh from the Archbishop of Dublin. Why didn't you go yourself, Bishop? Go over. Go to the victims yourself. Um, I encourage them to go to the place. I suppose perhaps I should have, perhaps I should have done, but um, uh, I have so much to do. In secret, Archbishop Connell did launch an investigation, but according to the laws of Roman Catholicism, known as canon law, Connell followed orders from the Vatican to keep any details of Walsh's crimes hidden behind the walls of the church. Everybody involved in that process the accuser, the accused, and the witnesses are all obliged to take an oath of absolute secrecy that they will never reveal for the rest of their life any of the information that they learn in the process. Victims were sworn to absolute secrecy, and the sanction for breaking that secrecy was automatic excommunication, the ultimate sanction that the church can enforce. read the Murphy Report, you begin to see the same patterns emerging all over the place. 
patterns in Boston and in Milwaukee that were similar to Dublin. The policemen moved from A to B to C to D. Nobody told anybody. The civil authorities not informed. The Murphy Commission got access to documents. They got cooperation from Archbishop Dermot Martin and were able to reveal how the Vatican in some way was part of what went on in Dublin. In fact, how the Vatican oversaw it. Following the dictates of the Vatican, 13 years after the first sign of Walsh's abuse, Archbishop Connell finally convened a secret church trial. They appoint three judges, canon lawyers, to listen to evidence, which is overwhelmingly evidence against this guy, and they recommend in 1992 that he should be dismissed from the priesthood. And he's always pleaded not guilty. Even though he's admitted to 100 cases of abuse, he's pleaded not guilty. He appeals that to Rome. For eight months, the Vatican dithers and decides what to do with him. And in that eight months, he abuses another child. Abuses a child at his grandfather's funeral. The Vatican is fundamentally responsible for this guy being abused. The Vatican come back and decide, well, we won't dismiss him from the priesthood. Put him in a monastery for ten years. The bishop is tearing his hair out. What do you mean, put him in a monastery for ten years? No monastery will take him. And so... Des Connell pleads with the Vatican and he personally went to see Cardinal Ratzinger to write his dismissal order. The Vatican did nothing. But angry parents forced the police to act. Walsh was convicted of sexual assault in 1995. Only then, after tolerating Walsh's abuse of hundreds of children, did the Vatican finally dismiss Father Walsh from the priestly state. Two priests who were judges on the Tony Walsh case swore an oath of secrecy. Where are they now? The two bishops. For priests, secrecy can have its rewards. But for the faithful in Ireland, the cover-up may be an unforgivable sin. We were 95% practicing Catholics. I spoke to a priest only yesterday. He says 4% come to church in Dublin. But that's not to say that they've lost their faith. They certainly lost faith in the hierarchy. In 2010, Pope Benedict sought to bring the flock back to the church by writing an unprecedented letter to the Irish faithful. To us bishops, he says, we must admit that grave errors of judgment were made and failures of leadership occurred, which have seriously undermined our credibility and effectiveness. What he does is he blames the Irish bishops for their misplaced concern for the reputation of the church and the avoidance of scandal, for not following canon law, he never once acknowledged the role of the Vatican in all of this. I mean, I spoke to one bishop who was so angry. He said, how dare he? Blame us. Show me where we didn't follow canon law. Canon law was a problem. That prompted a few people to come out of the woodwork, if you like. An anonymous source leaked with Pilo a mysterious document. It was a smoking gun. A 1997 letter from the Vatican that overruled attempts by Irish bishops 
to report sex abuse to the police. Why didn't anyone just stand up publicly and come out and say, the Vatican instructed us not to report crimes to the police? Because they're totally loyal to the Vatican. In 2011, the release of yet another government investigation was the final blow that shattered relations between the Vatican and Ireland. The Cloyne report excavates the dysfunction, the disconnection, the elitism that dominate the culture of the Vatican today. The rape and the torture of children were downplayed or managed to uphold instead the privacy of the institution, its power, its standing, and its reputation. This calculated, withering position, being the polar opposite of the radicalism, the humility, and the compassion upon which the Roman Church was founded. He was held in great favor by John Paul II, 
for a number of reasons. The money certainly was one of them. Second, he was bowing and scraping and, and worshiping the, the Pope. The Pope apparently liked it. Todos muy fuertes. Todos hijos e hijas de Padre Masil. But as the song goes, Thomasia looked like an angel and talked like an angel. He was a devil in disguise. <laughs> Behind closed doors, Marcial lived his secret life. He was a morphine addict and a ruthless sex criminal who abused dozens of his legionaries. He would visit the monasteries every few days and insist on being masturbated or on having sex with one of the boys. Often posing as an agent of the CIA, he had at least two secret mistresses and four children. He abused some of them, too. Yet even when stories in the press began to emerge about Marcial, John Paul did not investigate him. He celebrated him. In 1997, when Renner and I did the investigative piece for the Hartford Current, the response we got from the Vatican was nothing. To say that John Paul was not given the information is preposterous. He is the Pope. People around him have this kind of information. One key cardinal... Angelo Sedano stayed close to Marcial, even as Marcial funneled millions of dollars into the Vatican. Sedano would be Marcial's protector right at the end. The Marcial Marcial case is really a school case in order to understand how the machine works within the Vatican. Marco Politi is one of Italy's most knowledgeable Vatican watchers. He has also spent a considerable amount of time with Joseph Ratzinger. From the outside, Ratzinger is often perceived as a fifth personality, cold, merciless, uh, with the dissenters in the church. If you see him from the inside, in the inner circle, it's a very warm personality, sensitive. Uh, so he has always been very shocked when he has heard about sex abuse, uh, scandals. Uh, it, for him, it's a horrible thing. Innanzitutto devo dire che queste rivelazioni sono state per me un shock. Sono una grande tristezza. È difficile capire come questa perversione del ministero sacerdotale era possibile. His first reaction is, the horror that a priest could do something like this. That's telling. It wasn't these poor victims. That was not his first reaction. His first reaction was, it despoiled the priesthood, this sacred institution. Yet when he was a cardinal, it had been his job to examine every one of these sex abuse cases. Ratzinger met with John Paul every Friday. Did he stay silent? Or did he speak with John Paul about Marcia? Ratzinger would have liked to open an investigation, but he was stopped by the Secretary of State, Cardinal Sodano. Sodano's ability to protect Marcio put Ratzinger in a difficult position as more and more victims of Marcio came forward. Vatican watchers knew it was Ratzinger's job 
to investigate. I want to ask you a question about Father Masia. Uh, no, I can you talk about that I'm not so informed just because let's speak in this moment. Even I think inconvenient in this moment to come to me. Then there's a question whether you come to me when this moment is given. Not, not yet. Well, we try to ask what you find in Ratzinger at that point is a man who was troubled by justice that had not gone forward, and yet at the same time was trying to balance his loyalty to the Pope, who clearly did not want Masiel prosecuted. <laughs> Till the moment when John Paul Second is dying. The same day that John Paul II dies, the Prosecutor General of the Congregation of Faith flies to New York. And he stays in New York and in Mexico City eight days. And he gets all the material to show that Marcel Marcial was a sex criminal. So it is interesting for at least 15 years the Vatican didn't move a finger to investigate, and only in the moment when all the Vatican is stopped, because everybody's thinking the Pope is dead, Cardinal Ratzinger succeeds to get the evidence. Cardinal Ratzinger's investigation confirmed his suspicions of Marcial's crimes, but still he did not act. When Benedict became Pope in 2005, did Benedict order his trial? Did Benedict punish him in any way? No. Following a Vatican order to live a life of prayer and penitence, Marcia settled in Jacksonville, Florida. The Vatican communique did not mention his victims or the nature of his crimes. An earlier statement had put an end to Marcia's church trial, and that came not from Ratzinger's office, but rather from the office of Cardinal Sedano. Not even a pope is all-powerful because he lives in a structure, the Roman Curia, which is almost 2,000 years old. And the structure always wants to defend itself. He searched the truth about Marcel Marcial, 
but he didn't get the courage to condemn him immediately, publicly, and to defrock him. facing a disease that would ultimately take his life. Bob Bolter made this video to memorialize Father Murphy's crimes. set out on a road trip with his friends from St. John's, Arthur and Gary, to see if they could finally hold Murphy to account. Murphy was living at the cabin in Boulder Junction with a deaf housekeeper who had studied and worked at St. John's. Bob gave me the camera, and I videotaped. Bob's ringing the doorbell, and then he comes away from the door, walks around to the side of the house, to the right, by the lake. And then Murphy came up. And they met. And Bob got in his face and really let him have it. He told him, you need to walk yourself right now to the police station. Walk yourself to jail. Stand, Grace. Stay out of it. After that, we got back in the car and we left. When I told my wife what I had experienced with Murphy, her heart broke for me. When I finally told her, I thought, shit. I never should have told my wife. I thought I'd made a mistake. I shouldn't have said anything. I should have kept it to myself. But it was too late. We grappled with it. And my wife ultimately took me to a psychologist. So when I finally blew, just let it all out, I decided to write what turned out to be a seven-page letter to Murphy. I had to unleash every angry emotion that I had ever felt, and I just regurgitated it onto paper. 
to Murphy. I would call Murphy a wolf because of the way he was lusting after the prey that he stalked. It was like we were all little sheep laying in our beds. We were good, innocent Christians. The wolf would come in, pick his prey, and molest them. I sent that letter off to him, and I got no reply. So I wrote a second letter to Murphy. Still no reply. Weakland was always considered to be somebody who stood up to the Vatican. He really was the bete noir of the conservative church because he was the leading spokesman for an intelligence progressive wing in the church. Weakland inherited Murphy in 1976. And all through the 70s and through the 80s, and up until that letter, Archbishop Weakland does absolutely nothing with him. Not a thing. He keeps gathering information on Murphy because victims keep coming to the archdiocese about him. What's happening with him? What are you doing with him? He does psychological and criminological assessments of Murphy where they determine he's assaulted you know, probably 200 children. The therapist's handwritten notes on her interviews with Murphy not only determined that he was untreatable, they also revealed his complex justifications for his crimes. Archbishop Weakland called me in to have a meeting. What do you do about Father Murphy? It's a question that kept repeating itself over and over again. The statutes of limitation have expired. So criminal charges in his, in his courts 
out of the question. Statutes of limitations in the church courts, according to church law, canon law, had expired long before the others. Then it became evident that it might be possible to still submit the Murphy case on the basis of the way in which he used the confessional. That was one where the statute of limitation never expires. I submitted that to Cardinal Rossinger's office. Finally, I think after a year, got an answer back saying yes, we could open the case. A Catholic going to confession is at his or her absolutely most vulnerable. The priest uses his power over these vulnerable, helpless children to solicit some form of sexual gratification from them. I don't think there's a there's vocabulary that we have that can adequately describe how horrendous and duplicitous this is. Vatican had received the letters but nothing happened and that was truly disappointing the way in which we wanted to handle it then was to take him out of ministry totally and that's why we took the case to Rome Nicolin had a private conversation with Cardinal Ratzinger in the end Cardinal Ratzinger said well your problem is you're not docile Eakland also had a formal meeting to plead his case at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. The deaf community in Milwaukee wanted to dismiss Father Murphy from religious life. So my heart went out to them. And it went out to the, the kids in particular because they had not been believed by anybody. This meeting was held the last week of May, in the middle of the summer, toward August. We get a letter that this case would not go forward because Father Murphy was quite ill. I felt awful having to go back then to say there's nothing more I can do. I felt awful about that. Weeksliner actually made an effort to do what any ordinary citizen would do, get the guy out and protect others. However, he did it without sacrificing his standing in the clerical culture and with the Vatican. He had his own sexual activity that he had to hide and keep secret, and that distorts the whole picture. Equal's activity a homosexual affair he had had with a graduate student who ultimately blackmailed him and the church for $450,000. Weakland's fall from grace had nothing to do with sexual abuse, really. I mean, it was a consensual relationship with somebody who was 35. The big problem was the payoff, the paying for silence. That was the real scandal. He 
people who are concerned about me ask how I feel at this moment. The best nouns to describe those feelings would be remorse, contrition, shame, and emptiness. He's slandered all the time by people carelessly saying he's a pedophile, which is all nonsense. He's come out and said very openly that he's gay in his book, which also drives people nuts. You have an archbishop who could say that he's gay. The scandal distracted people from a key element of the Murphy story. Rome may have refused to move against Murphy because of a letter that Father Murphy had written to Cardinal Ratzinger. I have repented of any of my past transgressions and have been living peaceably in northern Wisconsin for 24 years. I simply want to live out the time that I have left in the dignity of my priesthood. It's not just I'm an old man. I'm an old priest. I'm an old priest. Don't throw me away because I have this special mark. I am another Christ. See, there is a heresy that the church teaches. When a man is ordained a priest, he is changed ontologically. He is made a different brand of human being. A little less than the angel. These are people set apart. They're called. They're chosen by God. They want to protect the sacramentality, this supernatural element. And so that's why they were very, very careful to do anything to the priest. A priest can take bread and wine and make Jesus Christ present on this altar. He has power over heaven and hell. Somebody comes to you in confession and you say, I won't absolve you. He'll be damned. The church court informed me that Murphy couldn't go to his church hearing because he was too ill. And Murphy wouldn't live much longer. But Murphy went to play the slots. And then he collapsed. He was taken to the hospital. Murphy passed away, and he was buried in his priestly vestments in a Catholic cemetery. down to visit me and uh, I I don't know how to how to analyze somebody like that I don't self-delusional uh, what's sincere and what isn't I couldn't work that out he certainly didn't come off as a as an evil angry person so on probably childlike is the best way I could best way I could describe it. Yeah.
there are many people inside the Vatican who still don't see how serious a matter this is. And the code of Omentan, the code of silence, keeps people from speaking out. It's part of the whole psyche and mentality and ethos of the hierarchy. This idea that there are enemies out to destroy the church and do whatever you can to keep ammunition away from them. For centuries, the Vatican has been accustomed to, to show to the world always that it was perfect. So you understand that the Vatican is terrorized that in Italy you could have also thousands of sex abuse cases which up to now have been hidden. In America il caso più eclatante è quello di, che è accaduto in un istituto di sordomuti. Anche in Italia, anche in Italia a Verona è accaduta la stessa cosa, con le stesse dinamiche, lo stesso tipo di violenza, perché fino agli inizi degli anni 70 i, i sordomuti erano considerati dalla scienza medica disabili psichici incapaci di intendere e di volere oltre che di comunicare, per cui era anche più facile, meno rischioso eh, abusare di, eh, dei sordomuti. La storia dei sordi di Verona ha molto impressionato chi è venuto a conoscenza di questi fatti. Abbiamo un problema in Italia, di queste cose non si può parlare. Nel momento in cui cercavano di dire quando andavano a Natale o a Pasqua a casa quello che gli accadeva, molti di loro prendevano anche le botte perché dicevano queste cose non si dicono. Pedofilia religiosa, chiesa omertosa! Pedofilia religiosa, chiesa omertosa! Chiediamo che il Vaticano smette di essere presidente e che decida spiegare i preti e di allontanare tutte le persone dell'istituto coinvolte. Throughout Italy, news of victims is often drowned out by more powerful voices. The signal from Vatican radio is so strong that Romans can often hear Sunday Mass on their electric doorbells. But when it comes to stories about sex abuse, there is a deafening silence on Italy's national networks. I think for Catholic journalists, it's been a very, very difficult time. My responsibility as a reporter, I have to try to tell the truth. I don't work for the Catholic Church. I work for a Catholic publication. We're not in the business of being a cheerleader for the Holy See or for the bishops. But I still hear some of the old Monsignori in the Vatican saying, wow, now boys have always done this. In all male environments, it's normal. I mean, this wasn't abuse. I mean, these kids, they were interested, and it's lights of passage. I mean, even in 2011, one bishop made the statement, little boys heal, they will get over it, in reference to a priest who had marauded a number of young boys, 10, 12, 13-year-old boys, uh, mainly raping them and things like that. You don't heal from that. In most instances, your life is never the same. It's ruined.
I realized that the Vatican was in control of every priest and every nun, every bishop and every cardinal, and they were all under oath. They couldn't talk about it. I couldn't stand seeing the church tell everyone to keep quiet and not talk about it. Terry had written to Cardinal Sadaro. On that, I felt we could go. Jeff said, your letter to the Vatican was very powerful, and I'd be honored to represent you. I immediately agreed and signed the paperwork. When they left, I said to my wife, Jeff is going to help me sue the Vatican. He's going to get things in motion. I love Jeff for that. Jeff Anderson and Associates filed a lawsuit against the Vatican on Terry's behalf. The suit named Pope Benedict, the current Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Bertone, and the former Secretary of State, Cardinal Sodano. What we implore the Vatican to do in this lawsuit and what we need them to do is to act. That is to disgorge the secrets, the evidence of the crimes that they have, the identities of the offenders, and that bishops, archbishops, and cardinals that have been complicit in those crimes worldwide. As a result of Terry's lawsuit, documents were uncovered, revealing the role of Rome in the worldwide sex abuse scandal that caught the attention of the New York Times. These documents seem to turn the whole story that we've been writing all these years on its head. Up until then, what we thought was that American bishops were at fault. With these documents, for the first time, we saw communication between American bishops, and in particular the office run by then Cardinal Ratzinger, in which the American bishops are pleading with officials in the Vatican repeatedly, saying, help us get this priest out of the priesthood. The victims are asking us to defrock him. And the response from the Vatican is to have compassion for the priest and almost no thought at all about the victims. And you see that in these documents. I was completely unprepared for the reaction. I had no idea how big a story it was. I got hate mail. I got hate phone calls that were anti-Semitic. The New York Times and me personally, we were accused of being anti-Catholic. This is being driven by Jeffrey Anderson teaming up with the New York Times, going back a half a century, the alleged abuse took place in the 1950s. The Vatican didn't find out about the case until 1996. Ratzinger goes ahead and orders an investigation, and during that two-year period while they're investigating, Father Murphy dies. Now, what exactly was Ratzinger supposed to do? Where is the wrongdoing? It appeared to me that Mr. Donahue didn't even read the story. The victims... And their advocates met with Archbishop Cousins in 1974. And there were representatives of the Vatican in that meeting. They were introduced to two men who said they were from the papal ministry's office. There was a way that the Vatican was informed of that case as early as 1974. The Murphy case has reinforced Jeff Anderson in his role as the Vatican's public enemy number one. By 2010, he had filed over 1,500 lawsuits against the church. Supporters of the Vatican portray him as a money-hungry shyster, cashing in on the pain of victims. The victims see the lawsuits he brings as the only way they can hold the church to account for what it has done. Father Santo, 
e con lei il popolo di Dio, che non si lasci a impressionare dal chiacchiericcio del momento. Deny, minimize and blame. And so they now blame the media. They now blame the lawyers. They now even blame the survivors. In 2011, Jeff Anderson and Associates attempted to serve legal papers from Terry's lawsuit to the Vatican. The FedEx package was returned with the Vatican's comment marked undesired and unwanted, forcing Anderson's next attempt to be made through the U.S. State Department. The church claims to be and is recognized as a state. States have immunities. States have their own law. They are severely disordered, and that's why they abuse. Jeffrey Robertson is a human rights lawyer and the author of the book, The Case of the Pope. He seeks to hold the Pope accountable for crimes against humanity and to demolish the diplomatic immunity of the Vatican. The Vatican is not really a state. It's a tiny little religious enclave in Rome. It doesn't have a people. There are no Vaticanians. No one gets born in the Vatican except by accident. It's a group of celibate religious figures. It's got no army, it's got no soccer team, none of the attributes of statehood, yet it has this power because of a historical anomaly. In 1929, Mussolini made an alliance with the man who became Pope Pius XI. The church supported Mussolini's one-party fascist state in return for being given the attribute of statehood. It is the creation of a state for the Catholic Church by fascists. This fence is the border of the country that is known as the Vatican. 178 countries now acknowledge the Vatican as a state. Politicians like to go and meet the Pope. They like to have the blessing of the Pope to encourage their voters. But the Pope poses a problem. According to canon law, the pontiff cannot be judged by any civil or religious authority. He is beyond the law. It will be, I think, an important task to work out how to bring the Pope beneath the law by arguing either that the Vatican is not a real state or that the degree of his negligence over the child abuse scandal does involve him in a crime against humanity. This is a global church that's growing most rapidly in the developing world. In these cultures, the idea of someone coming forward and saying a priest has done something wrong, it doesn't happen. There's such a stigma to this problem. There's so much shame and embarrassment. But we know it goes on there because it's a human problem. And there have started to be cases uh, in Latin America, in the Philippines, even some in Africa and India, very slowly. They're about where the American church was in the 1960s or the 1970s. There's going to be a delayed reaction in that part of the world. In America, bishops have taken some steps to protect children and to reckon with the sex abuse crisis. But the church has also begun to attack survivors' groups in court. One of the church's most public defenders has been Timothy Dolan, who was recently promoted 
to Cardinal. In 2009, Dolan was the Archbishop of Milwaukee, where he endured legal settlements to abuse victims that cost the church more than $26 million. When you think of what happened, both that, that a man who proposes to act in the name of God would have abused an innocent young person, and that some bishops would have, in a way, countenanced that by reassigning abusers. That's nothing less than hideous. That's nothing less than nauseating. The second story, morally, is the church's reaction to that, which I think has been good. Many who disagree. The fact is that abuse cases continue to surface all over the country. While in Milwaukee, Dolan met with victims, but also took bold steps to protect the church from their claims. Survivors note that Dolan moved assets from living victims to dead souls by transferring $55 million of church money to a cemetery trust. Then, in 2011, the archdiocese declared bankruptcy. But in 2012, 570 victims of sex abuse, including Arthur and Gary, were granted the right to a trial against the church in Milwaukee's bankruptcy court. Their goal was to uncover more documents regarding sex abuse and to obtain cash settlements for survivors. This is the largest organization in the world. You have rivers of cash Sunday after Sunday that flow into these collection plates. There's great concern within the hierarchy about the impact of the financial losses. So eight dioceses have taken bankruptcy protection to negotiate mass settlements. Boston has lost more than 50% of its parishes. Prima interesse sono le vittime. Come possiamo riparare? Che cosa possiamo fare per aiutare queste persone a superare questo trauma, a ritrovare la vita, a ritrovare anche la fiducia nel messaggio di Cristo? Benedict XVI would like to heal the situation, to heal the victim. On the other hand, he is in a sort of stalemate because uh, the organizations of the victims want full transparency about the past. They don't want only that the priests are the rock. Uh, they want full transparency about the past. And uh, I don't think that Benedict XVI is able to resolve this problem. The ongoing revelations have provoked survivors to demand a complete accounting of all cases of pedophile priests. It's the central demand of Terry Kohut's lawsuit against the Vatican. Open the archives. The church is a perfect society, and it witnesses this perfect society to the rest of the world. If we could get that out of our minds. Maybe we take the pedestal away from the priest, take the pedestal away from the cardinals, take the pedestal away from the whole church, and, and be willing to say, this is us, world. This is us. This is who we are. We're a church of imperfect people. Jesus wasn't afraid of humanity, and there shouldn't be either. 
I'm asked in court oftentimes, how many times have you testified on behalf of the church? And my response usually is always. And they said, really? Yeah, really. The people, they're the church. The victims, their mothers, their fathers, their friends, those are the church. They're the people of God, as is found very clearly in the gospel stories of Christ. They are the people of God. They're the church. Many of the people of God see their lawsuits as a way of taking back their church. In a key victory in the Milwaukee bankruptcy, victims uncovered nearly 50,000 pages of documents which revealed predatory priests and the role the Vatican played in protecting them. Terry recognized that the Pope's power as a head of state would beat back his lawsuit, so he withdrew from his own case and joined Gary, Arthur, and the bankruptcy plaintiffs in their legal crusade to protect children. <laughs> Hi, my name is Gary Smith. Hello. And thank you all for coming here today. What about heroes? Thank you all for coming here and supporting us here today. Thank you. <laughs> Documentary proving Catholic Church's systematic abuse and cover-up in the U.S. and, of course, abroad. And uh, isn't it amazing that it takes a group of uh, quote-unquote deaf men to uh, 
stand up. How many of us will do that? How many of us will do that? Not too many of us. Not too many of us. Anyways, part six of the servants of Antichrist, and of course this was about the priestcraft of uh, the papacy and their involvement. So now we see this not just the Roman Catholic Church, but it's subordinate churches, the synagogue of Satan, um, and many other false religions out there. Their priest class. God bless. Take care. Oh yeah, by the way, Dave McGowan is very, very, very ill. And uh, it'd be nice if somebody would uh, pray for him and recognize uh, recognize him. He's the one who's uh, done many, many books. He's, uh, he's done a book uh, called uh, Weird Scenes in the Canyon and uh, exposed did a very professional and uh, amazing expose on uh, the Boston bombing, the fraud that it is. So I ask all who listen to this that they do pray for Dave McGowan. And you can look him online and listen to his interviews. He was going to come on the show. Maybe he still will if he gets better. Right now he's too sick. And I understand that completely and I have all the respect in the world for the man. So... And he might not be, quote-unquote, one of us as far as the religion goes, but he's still one of God's children. Oh, hey, Andrew, how's it going? Have you been listening? We just, you just came out. How long have you been in? How long have you been listening, Andrew? Are you still there? I don't know. Um Yeah. Ah, well, if you can't get a chance, go back and listen to it. It's a documentary. It's just uh, on the uh, HBO. You might have already seen it, uh, the HBO documentary on the systematic abuse of children in the Roman Catholic Church. So that's what all they did was play that. So doing this series of the uh, Servants of Antichrist. So, And uh hope you're doing okay, Andrew. And uh, I don't know. Probably going to end this recording. But uh, God bless everybody. Take care. All right, bye.